1: Thank you for joining us today for On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rhody Fisher. As a Christian mom for over forty years and a teacher of the Bible in public schools for twenty-five years, Rhody will take you on a journey with some of her friends as they share their experiences and testimonies from their walk with Christ. You'll see that you are not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. Welcome to On the Road with Jesus. Now, here's your host, Rhody Fisher. Thank
2: you so much for joining us today. Pray, Father, we ask that you would be with our listeners, our special guests, Dr. Dan Brubaker, as well as those of us here in the studio. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. We are in Psalm 118 today, and I'm reading out of the NIV, sorry about that for those of you that are. And NIV opposed, but that's what I have today. So um, beginning at verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. When hard pressed, he cried to the Lord. He brought me Into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surround me. On every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarm around me like bees, but they consume as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous, the Lord's right hand. Has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand ha- is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live. I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks. For you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's Jesus. I added that, sorry. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is good, and he has made light shine on us. With broths in his hand, join in in the festal procession, up to the horns of of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for that precious word. Yes, your love endures forever. I would like to introduce to you our special guest today. This is the first time I'm actually um, meeting him. Um, he is a friend of a friend of mine who um, has a ministry called M2M or Ministry to Muslims, and that's Ministry M, Ministry. The word the word two o, not the number two, but Ministry to and he will be speaking there this September 8th, 9th, and 10th at the Armstrong Strong Tower event. I'm really anxious to interview him. And um, welcome, Dr. Daniel Brubaker.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for giving me the honor of uh, being able to be here with you today. It's great what you're doing on this show.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much. Listen, for our viewers uh, our audience, could you give us a little bit of background about how you grew up? Did you believe in Jesus, or who was Jesus to you as a child? Did you go to church? Did your parents go to church with you? Sometimes parents just drop them off. And did you celebrate Christmas? Kind of all that as you were growing up.
3: Well, of course we celebrated Christmas. Yeah, yeah. We uh, no, we I grew up in a uh, in a Christian home. I was born in San Antonio, Texas. At the time that I was born, I'm the first uh, child in our family. Mm -hmm. And my parents were praying for a child for several years uh, before I came. And at the time that I was born, they were involved with a um, Bible study at their church of the book of Daniel. They named me Daniel because they wanted to appreciate Daniel, what he was like, the way he stood as A follower of God in a hostile and foreign land, uh, and he stood firm. He stood firm even even when everybody else was against him, and he just kept his eyes on God and did what he knew was right. And so, I was raised by my parents to um, to be a Daniel. My mom, many times growing up, told me, "You know, dare to be a Daniel," and uh, emphasized that point with me. When I was five years old, um, I received Christ. I understood my sin and, um, and I prayed to receive Christ, ask him to come and take away my sin, uh, and cover it. And so that was my, uh, even though I was dedicated to the Lord as a, as a baby at that church, I, I became a, a Christian at age five, as did my wife incidentally. And we didn't meet until many years later, but it was about that same, about that same time. We were born about a week and a half apart. And, you know, years later when we were in college or freshman year, we met in a Bible study. And, um, So it's kind of interesting to think about that happening with these two young kids at that time.
2: Wow. Was there a time as a teenager that you kind of questioned who he was or was that belief, that faith with you the whole time?
3: Well, I have a I don't I don't know what I know. Everybody has a a different set of life experiences and things. I started. We lived overseas a couple times growing up, but we moved over and we lived in Spain, in Madrid, uh, in 1980 for a few years. And while I was over there, we traveled around a lot. We experienced different cultures and so forth. We actually went to, uh, a church while we we're there in, in Madrid. Uh, it was of Americans, but it was in, in the town. But I started reading my Bible at that time and I wanted to, um, I wanted to read it completely through, which I did. I started in Genesis and I went right on through. And that was a very important um, time for me because I took it on as, I would say, I mean, I had already taken it as my own, but I, I, I increased my understanding. Um, in answer to your question, uh, yeah, I think uh Any person is going to, I mean, we should be uh, asking ourselves questions about what, whether what we believe is, is right. We can't, we shouldn't assume that what we, what we believe or what we've been told by our parents or whatever is, is true. And so I think that, um, and I I believe that God allows us to do that. Thomas, Jesus didn't get after Thomas when he, when he doubted. He invited him to come and check it out and make sure that it was, that it was really him. And I think that, that, um, that, uh, spirit of inquiry and, and, and uh, thinking and making sure that we are seeking what's true. You know, the the Bible says, you will seek me and you'll find me when you seek with all your heart. And so we're invited to seek. Uh, we are in a world that's made up of truth. And whatever everybody else says, there's truth and there's falsehood. And, you know, to say otherwise is a self-defeating proposition. But uh, we we have this task of, of trying to figure out what's true. And so that kind of leads into probably what we'll be talking about today. But, you know, I, I grew up... Uh, in, even in high school I had we lived uh, within view of in um, Bellevue Washington of the Mormon temple that went up in, inside of our house and I had many Mormon friends and so we are surrounded by people who believe different things
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, and that's uh, and that's a good thing we should be talking to people who believe different things but um, uh, so I don't really know how no there wasn't a time when I when I really had serious doubts about about the truth of the Bible although I did um, not assume, you know, I, I'm always looking to check things out.
2: Um, and are you in full-time ministry right now? And how did the Lord call you to specifically, I, I'm, I'm going to guess, Muslim ministry, or are you just involved in seeking to minister to the loss?
3: Yeah, well, I'm an, I'm an academic. I mean, I, I suppose all of us who are believers are in full-time ministry, technically, it may be, maybe we're not in full-time, we're not in paid ministry. Right. But, uh, you know, we all we all have the Great Commission. It's not just for the the pastor or for the missionaries or anything like that. That applies to all of us is for disciples of Jesus. But uh, no, I am an academic. I, I work in. I'm, I'm postdoctoral now, almost 10 years postdoctoral. And so I write and I attend conferences and I have published um, uh, a couple books now. My first book is on the topic of my uh, of my doctoral uh, work, which I'm we may we may talk about. But this is the the uh, the book there, Corrections in Early Quran Manuscripts, and that's been pretty well received and translated into um, several languages now and so forth. But that's that's what I do, and I, I've um, continued. I've traveled around the world researching Quran manuscripts and looking at them directly and. And taking photographs. And this is my sort of specialized topic. So I am surrounded by many people and connected to many people, which is, I suspect, how you and I got connected in yes, yes. ministry who are doing apologetics and polemics and things like that. So the research that I have done has uh, some very um, um, practical um, implications that obviously are of interest to people who are doing apologetics and polemics. And that's why I was invited I assume this will be my first time at this conference in a couple of weeks, um, but uh, but that, that's 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 why the interest is there. But I'm not like some of the other people who are who are engaged in um, in m- much more direct uh, ministry or missionary work. Even though my heart is very much uh, with that uh, that type of that type of work, um, I try to actually walk in this uh, space that is more that is more academic. Okay. If yeah.
2: so so let's jump right in there and and talk about the quranic manuscripts mm-hmm. i know that um there's there's several translations or, or several I, I don't even want to call them translations i, I think s- somewhere along the line i heard that there were 13 different versions of the quran i'm not talking about translating it into a different language but um and then i've heard there were something like 36. I may be, be behind the times, but what say you about that?
3: Yeah, so the people who are talking, what you're probably referring to is the current printed editions of the Quran. And I think that, um, <clears throat> that uh, well, to understand... Uh, why that's important? I think as as believers, as as Christian believers, we have um, various versions of the Bible in our English translation. For example, we are well aware of the um, the the Hebrew and the Greek uh, manuscripts. You know, for a couple hundred years now, people have been doing research on on the manuscripts, and we know that there are variations in some of the early manuscripts. And so, what they try to do is they they try to get back to the earliest ones because scribes make mistakes and you know things like that. So uh, but but for us as as Christians, it's not an article of faith that um, that that no manuscript has ever been changed, or that there's even uh, you know if there's a difference in the various English translations, that doesn't bother us because we understand what's going on as it's translated from another language. Mm-hmm. For Muslims, the um, there has developed, and actually, interestingly, it was not the case in the very earliest years um, of the followers of. Muhammad's revelation, uh, so it came to be developed over time. But there, there has come to be a sense that the uh, Quran was perfectly uh, preserved, and that it was always um, every dot and every letter was it was completely the same in every single edition. One of the problems that that Muslims had had very soon after uh, Muhammad died, and he started the, the Muslim community started to interact with the non-believing people around them, the Christians and the Jews and others, is they started to realize um, that uh, the, the fact that Muhammad hadn't done any miracles, per se, became a, a, a sort of a sore point or a point of challenge that other people pointed to. And so the need for a miracle sort of confirming the Quran, confirming the revelation, showing that it actually was from God, uh, among other things, sort of gave the impetus for this development of an idea that, well, God is going to protect his revelation. So the fact that it was preserved perfectly and didn't have a dot or a letter or a single thing changed in it is evidence is an evidence in itself that the, that the book is from him and it is uh, because he protected it and he wouldn't protect any, you know, other books would undergo various uh, versions and so forth. And so coming right around to your question about that, it it came out several years ago as I've sort of followed some of the people who uh, we've talked about who are associated that there are in fact uh, a number of different, editions in print, and I think they're in the 30s or, I don't know, mid-30s, like you say, um, that actually do reflect certain differences today, uh, and, they're, and they're all current print editions. And and those are all different Arabic, so they, obviously the translations into another language like English or German or French would not be an issue, but the uh, Muslims focus very strongly as when they say the Quran, they mean the Quran in Arabic, mm-hmm. um, which I think actually is a pretty, um, pretty uh, in some ways, nice way of thinking about, we, sh- we should probably think about the Bible as the Bible in its original languages. And then we refer to our Bibles as translations. It's, you know, avoids some of the sort of problems that we've run into where people think, oh, the King James is a, is a an inspired translation. No, it was, it was a translation from the original languages. And there was not inspiration necessarily, uh, probably not, in the translators. It was just a trying to be a faithful translation of the original ones. Anyway, Getting around to that. So the fact that there are multiple print editions and print versions of the Arabic today has um, challenged that commonly held belief that the Quran was perfectly without a dot or a letter preserved throughout um, throughout history. And um, so, yes. Now, there's a little bit more that we can say about that. And I'm not sure how you want to go d- deep into that. but
2: Go um, ahead. We've got 40 minutes.
3: Okay. So uh, the... Because it sort of contrasts a little bit with what I've done with my research, so it might be a good transition into that. What they are talking about typically with those uh, in different print editions for the most part are chain are are variations in the vowels and in some cases possibly the diacritics and I know that many of our listeners or viewers may may or may not understand they understand vowels you know because we have vowels in in English but diacritics in Arabic. So we're going to do a real quick um, introduction to the high level, what, what the Arabic language is in its written form here. So Arabic people may have seen it has uh, these sort of lines that sort of flow together and they go up and down and so forth across. So sometimes they're connected, sometimes they're not. And it looks like, Oh, how could I ever read that? It's almost like a cursive type of writing in some ways, but above and below the lines, there are different dots. And there, there are different lines and things that are above and below. And what those dots and lines do is the dots uh, tell, they will distinguish one letter from another. So a, a letter sound. So you have a, a form in that sort of uh, flowing uh, baseline, And that form can, in some cases, represent different letters. So the dots will say, is this a, a T sound or is it a TH sound or is it a Y sound or is it a B sound? Those are called the diacritics. Those are not present for the most part in the very, very earliest Quran manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, nor are the vowels. So the vowels are lines, typically lines or other marks above and below the, the the thing is as well. And the vowels are part of the vowels and the diacritics are of course part of the pronunciation, but um, but they're not part of the original writing. So the idea is that a reader or a person who's reciting the Quran text would have known it and said it in a certain way. And the baseline, that, that, uh, that flowing swirly text, would, would be sort of the, the, uh, the basic indication of what the letters were, but that, there's additional information. So I tell you all that just so that you can understand that those variations in those 30-some versions that are printed today, for the most part, involve the diacritics and the vowels. Mm. maybe in a few cases they involve the letter forms on the line. Uh, I haven't looked at it that closely. I'm, I'm told that maybe here and there they might involve some of those. But even that is uh, is kind of jarring to some Muslims to realize that there are these various print editions because they've come to the impression or the belief that there's no difference among them. But to now turn around to what I've done in my work with, which is why. Uh, People are very interested in what I've done is I've, I've actually gone around to the earliest manuscripts and I've looked at thousands of pages of the earliest Quran manuscripts. And I found places in them where there were corrections made after the time that the manuscript was produced. Mm. And uh, these are corrections that are not typically involving the vowels or the diacritics that I just mentioned, but they're actually involving the letter forms themselves. Wow, and uh, so that sort of takes things to a different. Um, it addresses it, it. It causes a, sort of a cognitive dissonance on on a different level. If if you believe that if it's a matter of um, faith to you, if it's important to your to your belief system that you that this has been preserved by Allah, then uh, then that can be a, a jarring thing as well. Now, I don't. Um, necessarily pursue this to, in order to be jarring. I'm pursuing it as methodologically as a scientist who wants to do good history of the history of the text. And so I'm merely going through and documenting the manuscripts and showing where there was a correction made at some point. Sometimes, actually, when there's a correction made in the manuscript, you can actually, you can, in fact, see what was first written because the shadow of the earlier text is there or the shape of the erasure gives you an indication of what letter was underneath it or whatever. Um, now uh when it comes to the uh the, the corrections themselves obviously as we can imagine anybody who has ever written an assignment for school or something like that we know that there are times when we make a mistake on the page mm-hmm. and it's an honest you know just mistake and we didn't mean to do it we never intended to write the other thing and we just erase it and we write something else or cross it out or write something else or leave it and oh that was just a mistake you know So a certain number of these are clearly just scribal mistakes. Uh, And to make a big deal out of it in that case, when you just have a human person who's transcribing a manuscript, you know, we want to treat everybody, everything in a very fair and intelligent way and recognize that some of those are that. But some of them actually look like, you know, for various features of the of the manuscript, the particular change or the issues around it look like there's something other than that. Interesting. that's part of what i've dealt with in my in my little book as i talk about some instances and the reasons for believing that in some of these cases there was a belief by the scribe that the text was actually different from what we have today at the time that they first wrote it and things like that and you know that's basically what i do you know that's that's the substance of of my research and uh, it has gotten a lot of attention around the world and some criticism, and but it certainly has generated a lot of discussion among Muslims and among Christians and among people who are just interested in the topic and so forth. So I'm, I'm glad to not be ignored in my work, but I oh uh, see why, why people think it's, uh, it's interesting and important.
2: So maybe give us an example of something that is really critical, something that um, might be jarring or something that might be um, m- maybe change the meaning.
3: Yeah, well, there there are. I'll give you sort of an overview of the types of um, issues that we find in here, uh, just so people can get an idea. Uh, the, first of all, obviously, how many issues? Like, is the the natural questions that people think would 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 ask would be, you know, is is the entire text of the Quran is it all just a huge mess in the manuscripts, or are there changes and uh, variations everywhere, and in all these words? And the answer to that question. For the most part, is no. There are corrections across much of the Quran manuscript, uh, the Quran text. They tend to be fairly uh, minor, and there are some corrections, and there are also some variations that persist in the in the manuscripts. They tend to be fairly limited in number and not major from a um, I don't know, not affecting huge things of theology or or whatever. But uh, there are some that. That would affect theology, and also they would affect theology in in the sense of if you have the theological belief that it was preserved perfectly. But let me just describe for you the types of um, some of the types of uh, variations that we do find. There was one manuscript that I looked at in uh, Doha, Qatar. Uh, It has turned out to be one of the most interesting ones that I've studied, and it is the one that's pictured on the cover of the book.
2: On the back of the book, or the front?
3: On the front cover. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry, there's a glare here, but I'll just hold yeah. it up. But you can see this manuscript here, and I, I don't know how well I can uh, picture it for you. But the interesting thing about this is that anybody can see who's looking at this, even if you're not an Arabic uh, expert, you can see that there was a correction made here in the margin. That was uh, some words that were added in after the fact. It's a different yeah. name, a nib, and so forth. And then there's another one uh, over over here. And there are a couple of others I can't see kind of doing. Yeah, it, looks like,
2: it looks like there's four of them and and yeah. they're significant from my from my angle, and like you say, it's in a different color yeah. ink, which means it was later done. Maybe it was the same color, but this right. is faded. So um, yeah, I see um, that.
3: So the interesting thing about this particular manuscript is it's got a lot of um, corrections in it. But to me, the more interesting thing is that there are many places in the manuscript where the parts that are not corrected, and I just happen to come across this as I'm doing my work. I wasn't looking for variations in other parts of the manu- of, of manuscripts, but sometimes I come across them. The rest of the manuscript has a number of different variations from the text as it is written today, mm. which tells me that somebody, after the time this manuscript was first produced, went through it and noticed that there were things that they thought were errors in it. And in the process of correcting it, they saw some other things that people today would look at and think are errors. But the person who was correcting it apparently did not believe it was a mistake, Hmm. which leads me to believe that whoever did the correcting might have had a different impression of what the Quran was, what was the correct text of the Quran. Hmm. And this is a big issue for people who do work with, uh, texts like this, the, the possibility of a variant tradition or something like that. Now, uh, the types of variations that exist in this particular set of pages include things like items in a list being both the words are there, but the two items are reversed in order. Hey. So I'm going to the store. I'm, this is an example. I'm, I'm going to buy milk, eggs, and sugar. Well, I'm going to the store. I'm going to buy milk, sugar, and eggs. You know, it's that, that sort of difference in the text. It doesn't really change the meaning of what it is that you're going to buy, but it does change the actual uh, substance of what's what's there. There are a couple of other places in this, in these pages, where there are synonyms of words used, other words that would work, or synonyms or other words that would work in the context are um, exist, um, which. May or may not affect the theology or anything else, but it is a different word in that case and um, and not always a synonym, but maybe another word that that fits in the context um and there are other types of types of things that exist there so uh in answer to your question about something that is significant, are those theologically significant? um they are certainly very significant from the standpoint of the standard narrative, and it's there's been a lot of um as I've observed a lot of backtracking going on in recent. Uh, in the the past several years uh, because of the mere fact that uh, I and maybe some others have been describing these things and making it um, making the world I guess aware that they exist it's not actually a very um, complicated thing that we're doing that I'm doing it's just describing and putting up a picture and showing what you know what exists in a manuscript but it is interesting that it has that uh, that sort of impact. So coming around, though, to your uh, bigger question, which is a question that I get often, and that is theological importance. I have not yet, I've cataloged about, um, well, several thousand uh, corrections in early Quran manuscripts, and i have not yet... Uh, done a deep analysis of uh, of all of them. I have found some places. I found a couple spots, uh, one spot in particular. I always look for places where there might be a correction of the same word in several different, more than one manuscript, early manuscript. Um, so I've co- found a couple spots where there are those or words that are frequently corrected. I presented a paper a couple of years ago about a word that was frequently corrected in Quran manuscripts. And uh, that word happened to be the word for provision, referring to Allah's provision for his creation, his provision for his people and so forth. For some reason, that word is frequently corrected in Quran manuscripts. Hmm.
2: And, um, and, and so they put the word what instead of provision or they put provision for what word?
3: It's not entirely clear. It's just the fact that this word is frequently uh, corrected. It frequently is written as a correction over something um, in in, the, in these early Quran manuscripts. Um, there was another manuscript that I found in, well, one particular manuscript in St. Petersburg, Russia, that had a, a number of different instances of the word Allah that was forgotten at the time that the manuscript was written, and then it was written afterward, um, where Allah exists in the manuscripts today. And I thought, well, of all the things to forget, you would think that God wouldn't be the one that you would forget to, to put into your uh, into your holy book, right?
2: Yeah, interesting.
3: Um, but Allah is a frequently occurring word in the Quran, so you have to account for that. And um and in most of those cases Allah was understood. You know, if you even read it without the name, you would understand that Allah was the um was the subject who was implied. But even so to not have it written was, was I found that to be interesting.
2: Wow, interesting, yes. Now when you wrote this book, how many different books or manuscripts did you look at and compare? I mean, so you you wrote a book and you found these corrections, and in how many different? You know, obviously there's a lot of pages, but yeah. how many different books did you look at to come up with several thousand corrections?
3: Yeah, uh, the uh, I have looked at I, I've I've sort of lost count, but it's somewhere over ten thousand folia. And a folio is a page front and back. Um, okay. um, so some of these are individual pages that are just a fragment, you know, a called a fragment. A fragment can be one page. It can be a little piece of a page, or it can be a bunch of pages that are bound together that are not a complete manuscript. That's so any, any one of those three is called a fragment, but uh, all, all in all, it's about something over 10,000 pages. pages. Yeah. Wow. And so these Exist most, I would say, I don't know what proportion of those, but probably somewhere around half, probably more than half of those I've looked at. The actual manuscript in person uh, in some museum or library around the world. And then the rest of them I've looked at in facsimile editions. So there are some printed editions that reproduce the, the photographs of the manuscripts. So that would represent the rest of them. But to the, as much as possible, I try to get the, in front of the manuscript itself because you can see things in more detail, especially the type of work that I'm doing. It's better to look at it directly in person.
2: and And also you might be able to tell what the word was underneath. Yeah. Just by kind of the shape of it. I know that um, um, when I was in school, that was often the issue. You know, you you erase it and then you put something over it and the teacher would say to you, you should have left the other answer. I can tell you <laughs> the right answer.
3: <laughs> okay, well, give me credit for that one, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: right. Um, but... Um, it's interesting that you can see that in the original document even now, a thousand years later. Yeah. Well, how much later? Um, yeah. Over a thousand years, 1400 years.
3: 1400 yeah. years
2: yeah. yeah. So uh, really interesting. Now, what kind of, what kind of approach are you getting from those people that are reading your book and, and, and what, what value are they, you know, wanting? So for me, when I hear this, I want you to come out and say, you know, something really juicy about it, but it feels like there's errors or corrections, but not necessarily changing the meaning or, or there, no Muslim is going to run from their religion because of corrections. They might run from their religion for some other reason, hopefully, but not because of the corrections.
3: Well, that's not actually entirely true. I um, have had, a couple of people um, who I think is the tip, possibly the tip of the iceberg. But in any event, I was contacted out of the blue from a Muslim man in London, England, who said that he, he knew that there was something not right about his, his uh, religion. And he was just looking for, he was, I think he said he was 90% sure that it was not right. And then, or something like that. And he sent me this email. It was a Facebook message. He said, and then I saw your, then I saw your book. And I read it, and he said, it was right there, everything that I needed." And he said, I, I had everything at that moment to leave this this I forget what he called it, but it was some not nice word, this, uh, this religion behind." And so he became an atheist at that point. We started my okay. wife and I started praying for him uh, when we heard this, but I didn't you know, I just had a little bit of communication back and forth uh, with him, and then I think it was maybe six weeks later he, he received Christ and became a Christian.
2: Wow, what a um, beautiful story.
3: So yeah, so there, so this is uh, this is why it's it's kind of easy to underestimate the um, the impact in a person's mind on on seeing the corrections. Now, of course, the big question, the big question when it comes to Islam or any other religion or, or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or whatever, the big question is: is it true? And the big question with Islam is: is not has the Quran you know, even though it's an interesting question from a historical perspective, has it been passed down to us reliably and, and faithfully? Um, but the big question is whether the Quran is the word of God, if it represents something that God said, and that goes back to whether Muhammad was a prophet, was a true prophet from God. And it is claimed and believed, of course, by Muslims. And if I believed that to be the case, I would be a Muslim too. Mm-hmm. But that, that's that's the real question. You know, we're dealing with issues of truth here. And those are questions that I don't really even deal with in, in my work, although i you know I do think about them and talk about them and so forth but it's sort of outside of my methodologically it's outside of the work that, um, that that I do with the manuscripts so it's kind of interesting in that way but it is important that people who are watching this understand that that is the baseline assumption that anybody who is a muslim is is making and in, indeed the word muslim itself means uh one who is submitted and it you know the inference is that they're the one who is submitted to Allah who is, who is. Mm-hmm. Was a true follower of God. And Mm -hmm. so even the name Muslim has a big assumption in it. And that assumption is that Muhammad was a true prophet and that the Quran is his word. So, um, yeah. Is it bad to use the term Muslim? I don't think it necessarily is. But people might want to understand that it carries that sort of admission or that that you are a true follower of God if you're a Muslim. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, when I first started to witness to Muslims, um, it wasn't. A choice that I had I felt like God was calling me to do that and I thought gosh Lord can I maybe witness to just the Jews I mean I love the Jews um, and it was Muslim and I thought no but but when I first started on that path um, the Muslims say to me that the Bible was abrogated they it's changed so many times and the Quran was perfect in every single way and it 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 was never changed. And so Allah has protected their their book. And so to hear something like this is jarring. Um, Not just jarring, but we're talking tens of thousands of corrections over the years in several different manuscripts. It's a lot.
3: About 10,000 pages that I've looked at and about somewhere between three, maybe 4,000 uh, corrections. And some of those, remember, some of those are probably correcting scribal errors or things like that. So a subset of those are substantive. But even at that, I mean, even a single variation or a couple variations or something like that is, is very significant uh, in the mind of somebody who believes this per- that, that it's been perfectly
0: passed along.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I have a different question. Um, as you're doing all of this re- research, is this a class that you teach?
0: It is.
3: I, in fact, I just am finishing up teaching a graduate level uh, course for the second time on uh, historical assessment of the Quran. And I teach graduate students, and I, had, I believe I had one PhD student this time. Um, I teach at two different uh, Christian universities, and I also have a YouTube channel where I talk about some of these things, and I need to actually put up some more. It's been a while since I put up a video on this topic, but people can go watch that. It's called Variant Quran, and... You know, if, if, if the topic is interesting to you, you can see a lot more detail, and I actually show pictures and have some animations on there to help people understand what's going on in these. So, so yeah.
2: you're really teaching Christians that probably are um, really interested in the subject, either as, as a teacher themselves or going to be a teacher themselves or a Bible, Bible study teacher, maybe even a pastor level, but, but do you ever get Muslims that take your class?
3: Uh, well, the one that I'm teaching, the place that I'm teaching now is a Christian seminary. So it's a requirement for admission to it, that somebody be a Christian, sign a statement of faith and so forth. But I I have uh, had a very good interaction with many Muslims. I have Muslims who follow my YouTube channel and who um, tell me that they appreciate my work and are paying attention and so forth. So it is, and that's what I want it to be. I want it to be the case that people, uh, all kinds of people see my work to be honest and um, and meaningful and and true and so forth. And so that's, uh, it's very encouraging to me. Um, Now there are people who have been critical as well. And that's also something that just sort of goes with the territory, but no, in answer to your question. Yes. I do have Muslims who are following and I haven't had, I did. uh, I taught world religions for, Oh, I don't know, five semesters. I think at um, Houston Baptist at the time, it was called Houston Baptist university. Um, And I did have Muslims in my classes uh, there. Um, Mm -hmm. So I have, I have taught, and in fact, I taught Arabic at uh, Rice to uh, Muslim students. One, in fact, it's an interesting story because, um, and I sometimes tell it, many, well, most of the Muslims in the world actually don't know Arabic, uh, but uh, some Muslims do know Arabic, at least for reading. And I had a student who was from uh, Pakistan, I believe, and uh, we're working through Arabic. And I remember one of our first classes I was meeting with him one-on-one and I had him, okay, read this verse in the Quran and he read it. He read it beautifully. Uh, In fact, he had won an award at his local mosque for what's called Tajweed, which is the proper recitation with the inflections and so forth Mm -hmm. of the Quran. But when we got to the point and I said, okay, now let's translate it, he couldn't translate it. He didn't know what it meant. So he knew how to to, um, pronounce the words and how to read the letters, but he didn't know what it it meant. So this is the case for a lot of other Muslims in the world because the merit... um, you know, uh, Islam is a works-based religion. Your merit with God is not based upon grace. In fact, the Quran is very emphatic that in its assertion that Jesus did not die, he did not rise again, that he died, but he, they, he didn't die, and he wasn't crucified, and that um, that there's no atonement, and that nobody can bear the sins of another person. It's very, very emphatic about that. Mm-hmm. And so in Islam, the way, it's, it's a return to living under the law, basically. You know, mm-hmm. the law is a little bit different. So this sort of hangs over the head of every Muslim in the world, this idea that, oh, I have to measure up before God. And so this merit comes from different things, among which are following the five pillars of Islam and uh, included in the meritorious acts is the recitation of the Quran, the reading, the prayers, the five daily prayers are typically reading uh, or Mm -hmm. reciting. Text of the Quran, and so to learn how to do that in Arabic is something that many Muslims will do, even if they don't understand the words, because understanding the words is not necessarily mer- meritorious; it doesn't add to the uh, the uh, brownie points or whatever that you get with God for doing it. It's just saying it. So,
2: mm-hmm. and, and most most Muslim boys will say that their mother spoke th- those the prayers as he was they were in utero so and as as little children they can remember um reciting prayers and different things
3: probably it's, that's the case with many people yeah each okay. everybody's different you know it's like like christians too we're all we all come from different family backgrounds and experiences and cultures and things but yeah i would say i would expect that's the case with many muslims
2: it, it's funny as you were talking about um how he memorized the or could read the words mm-hmm. with the proper inflections in his voice and things like that. It's like singing a song that yeah. is, in, is in a different language. You know, you've got the notes there and you say the words properly. But um, a lot of people will sing an English song, and especially like a pop song. And and they got the words just perfectly down, but they don't speak English at all. So, yeah, yeah that, that's similar to that except this is more of a religious type thing. Mm-hmm. So um your you, i picture what you do um more inviting like it it allows it it, it allows the muslim person to read what you do and uh, no judgment here this is just the facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and they take it for what it's worth. Right. Um I I'm not a confrontational person um, when I when I share Christ with people, I'm I don't like to twist somebody's arm. I certainly don't want to break their arms, but I do want to present what the Bible says and what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Share the truth in what the Bible says and share my story, and they can ha- do whatever they want with it. I don't like to say, "Well, your Quran says this," or, you know, the Mormon Church t- t- teaches this. I I. I just leave that up to God and um, maybe for another person to, to challenge. Mm. Um, but I, I do like that approach that you've got the facts there and, and here it is by my book and, and read it over and tell me what you think. Um, now, uh, when you're when you're are you speaking on the same subject at, at the event that we're um, the Armstrong Tower event?
3: Yes, I uh, I apparently am giving four different lectures at the event and um, they were all from a series of topics that I presented as possibilities so I don't remember what they all are at the moment one of them is on the Quran manuscripts um oh another one is on what is the Quran just talking more generally about it um just a little spoiler of that one is that well there are different ways to answer that question but uh but I will mention to the listeners here that when we look at the Quran, it's important to understand um, that it is a um, theological argument. And I sometimes run into Christians who will, whether it's uh, being polite or being just not very informed or just wanting to, uh, whatever, uh, treat the Quran as though it is possibly revelation from God or Muhammad might have been a prophet or something like that. And, um, uh, but when you look at the Quran, and it takes a little bit more than, than we'd have time for here, but it is very, very Um, incompatible with biblical theology particularly when it comes to Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. and if you have read the Quran completely you will understand that it is an an all-out assault on the on the work on the completed work of of Jesus Christ it takes it away completely and that seems to me to be the main point of the Quran is to is to return people to a works-based pursuit of salvation which as we know biblically is no salvation at all. It's, it's mm-hmm. going to lead people to um, not be reconciled to God. And so understanding the Quran is a hostile the- theology, a theolo- theological argument that is hostile to biblical truth. Um, that helps you to understand, I think, how to approach it and to approach the people who believe it. And it's not to be mean or nasty or anything like that, but also not to say, oh, oh, Muhammad was a beautiful prophet and the Quran is such beautiful words. And so, you know, maybe beautiful aesthetically in some ways, but um, there should be a clarity of thought about what it is that is being asserted. People can say very, very damaging things in very beautiful language. And we see that all around us in the culture today. Um, so, I think it's the same thing in this case.
2: Now, what drove you to the? Subject at all. I mean, you you teach, you teach about the Quran. You teach about the different things that you found in the Quran. But what took you there as as a subject to teach?
3: It's interesting. I took a class on Islam, just a year long course. My freshman year of my undergraduate work at university of washington i was doing cell and molecular biology but for some reason i took as one of my general distribution courses this islam culture religion and culture class and it was very interesting to me and then sort of years passed and i did other things um i had had as i said interaction with uh, mormons growing up and i was very much involved with having discussions about uh, biblical truth issues with them and and so forth um and they kept coming back, my just as a sidebar to this uh, anytime sort of backed into a corner on an on a point of theology where they didn't know what to do, they'd always say, Well, we believe the Bible is true only insofar as it's translated correctly. And I was like, Oh, darn, you know, so I gotta learn the biblical languages. So I learned Hebrew. I I went to a Jewish community center and learned worked on learning Hebrew and so forth. You know, these things sort of lead in, but what, a number of years later, a friend who was interested in he was very his his direction was toward uh, toward Muslims and and reaching Muslims in in a ministry sense. He called me up and said Dan, would you like to would you consider doing a PhD in the area of Islam? And he did that because I was a believing Christian and he said, you know, there's just a lack of people who are actually Christians who are doing good solid academic work in this in this area and we just need more people because all the there's this sort of um practice of being courteous that sort of assumes that Muhammad is a prophet that assumes Many of the things that as in any other scientific endeavor, you wouldn't assume the conclusion. You would actually treat it with true, a true critical nature, a critical approach, which so for some odd reason, this is the way that Islam has been approached. And so the hope was to create more people who are doing that sort of very, not entirely skeptical where you're like, I'm not going to believe anything, but you're taking a, a, a real scientific approach to it. So that's why, that's why and how I got into and sort of shifted into this area.
2: And then you had to learn to read, write, and speak Arabic, which is a whole other um, thing. (laughs) Uh, On a side note, um, I I just want to ask this question, nothing to do with your subject. But um, so we see that everyone that speaks English calls Jesus, Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, he was probably called Yeshua when he walked this earth. Yeshua, yeah. are, do you find it problematic that we've changed his name?
3: Well, I mean that, that is a translation of his name. If it was Spanish, it'd be Jesús. It'd be uh, I mean, uh, I think I, it's I good mean, for people to know that his name was Yeshua. It was pr- probably pronounced Yeshua,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, which is incidentally the same as the name for Joshua in in the Old Testament. But mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, the problematic because of the name, you know, so is that the name? Well, we know the name. This is an interesting thing about the Quran, and I know we're running out of time. But when it comes to the name, the name of God, mm-hmm. God revealed his his name uh, to Moses. Mm-hmm. You know, we sometimes yeah. say Yahweh or whatever. Uh, or, uh, people are not really sure how what the correct pronunciation is. And some Orthodox um, Jewish people will not ever even attempt to pronounce it because it's considered so holy. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about the Quran is the Quran seems completely oblivious and unaware to the name. I mean, Allah isn't, I mean, they consider Allah to be the name of God, but it's completely unaware. So if, if the Quran and the Bible had the same author, don't I mean, you find it a little bit odd that the name, personal name of God that was revealed to Moses does not appear anywhere in the Quran? Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me.
2: Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. Okay, well, yeah. Um I want to thank you for being here today and especially at such short notice. I want it to works. remind the listeners that you will be live at in California at the Our Strong Tower event, which is coming up the 8th, 9th, and 10th of September. It'll be at Calvary Chapel Saving Grace in, uh, in Bass and Cherry, which is in your Belinda. And also get your tickets early or get make reservations early. Um, you can go to the website Ministry2, that's T-O, Muslims, with an S on the end, Ministry2Muslims, and sign up there. Or you can go to my webpage, or um, you can find us on YouTube or Facebook, and you'll see the brochure uh, there. And there's a QR code you can just... Shoot it with your phone or your laptop or whatever and and register that way. I want to thank you so much for joining us again. But right now, I'd like to talk to the listener who has never made a decision for Christ. Today would be the day for salvation for you. Jesus died for the whole world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, and you qualify as a whosoever, I do, so does so does the end there, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If that's what you want today, and you'd like to give your heart to Jesus and ask him for to forgive you for all your sins, because he is the only one that can. He died for each and every one of our sins and the whole world from the beginning of time till now. If you would like to accept him as your Savior and Lord, follow me in a simple prayer. Or speak to him in your own words. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me of the sins of the past, present, and future sins. Help me in my walk with you. Come into my heart and my life and allow me to follow you today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have said that prayer or something similar, call me here at Hope Radio or write me on the road with Jesus. Thank you so much again, Dr. Daniel Baker, and we will see you next month. God bless you and your family, and God bless you out there um, on the road with Jesus. Follow us again, will you? Bye for now.
1: Thank you for being here today for On the Road with Jesus with your host, Rhody Fisher. Every week, you'll hear experiences and testimonies from her and her friends as they share their journey with Jesus. You'll see that you're not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. If you have a question about today's show, email Rhodey Fisher at Raw Fisher at ontheroadwithJesus.com. Spelled R-A-H-F-I-S-H-E-R at on the com, Or leave a voicemail at 951-817-0094. That's 951-817-0094. On the Road with Jesus is sponsored by Global Expressions Language Project. Learn more at asquaredlamps.org. That's the letter A, squaredlamps.org. Be sure to join us each week at this same time for more On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rhody Fisher.